Hi, everyone. I'm Father Gravy, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. In this episode, we're going to go down into the Grand Canyon, talk about the beauty of the natural world, and see how it leads us to God. A few summers ago, a priest friend invited me to join him and two other guys to spend a few days hiking through the Grand Canyon. We were coming out of the COVID lockdown and I was itching for an adventure in the outdoors. Boy, did I get one. This was definitely not glamping. It was the most physically grueling experience I've ever had. I went in thinking I knew what to expect. I was totally wrong. The first day was by far the most difficult. We started at the top around 3 a.m as the faintest hint of dawn was breaking. We took one of the more remote trails. They were not at all groomed or all that wide. There are no guardrails, no signs of human activity. A wrong step could twist an ankle or send you down a sheer drop to certain death. I prayed the line from the Psalm, guide my steps along your path, O Lord, never let me stumble. We made a few mistakes, the biggest being our coffee break that ate up precious time in the morning coolness. We were completely off the grid. The only other people we saw the entire time was a guide leading out a group of women who had gotten heat stroke when they stopped to try and make margaritas. This was not the Copacabana. Our destination was the bottom of the canyon, right along the Colorado River. It felt interminable. We paused in the heat of the afternoon to rest and have some lunch before resuming our trek. There were some wrong turns and switchbacks, But finally, we could hear the roar of the river. And then a few miles later, we could see it. By the time we arrived, we had hiked 18 miles, over 5,000 feet downhill, over rugged terrain. We climbed boulders and forded streams, descending through the equivalent of almost four Empire State buildings stacked on top of each other. I was exhausted, but not too exhausted to miss the spectacle around me. And it was spectacular. My first view of the Grand Canyon came in the wee hours of the morning, looking out from the rim. It was stunning, this vast expanse of valleys and ridges and shades of stone. There's a reason five million people visit it every year. 99% of them see it only from there, not venturing into the canyon itself. I don't know if I felt it at the time, but I'm glad that we did. I could never have appreciated just how enormous just how grand it really is. I could say it's like the difference between looking at the Empire State Building from the sidewalk and looking out from the observation deck on the top floor. But even that doesn't do it justice. It was walking down and in and through the canyon, seeing the colors and vegetation change as the sun rose and moved and set, sleeping out in the open under more stars than I could believe that left you in awe and wonder. The human footprint is so minimal that you get a sense of pure nature and what a beautiful world God created. In the course of my travels, I've gotten to see many beautiful and famous places. Some of them make up the episodes of this season, palaces and churches and monuments, but I don't think any of them rival the places of natural beauty. In my early 20s, I remember being on a train going through Austria. I was traveling by myself and had a book to help pass the time. 
but the scenery through the Alps was so stunning, so picturesque, I couldn't take my eyes off it. The book had to wait. I had experiences like that in so many places. The fjords of Norway, a tropical beach, or even in less grandiose settings. Those few days a year when the weather is just perfect. Living in New York City, we can be a little starved for nature. When I look out of my kitchen window onto the fire escape, there's often a cardinal. This being a Catholic podcast, I should specify that I mean a bird, not a senior church official. It's a little burst of color on what could be a bleak city palette. Why did God make this red bird? Perhaps for no other reason than to make us smile. I am deeply in love with and in awe of the created world, of the natural beauty of God's creation. I think that's a very Catholic sentiment. Issues surrounding the environment and climate and natural resources are, like everything else nowadays, caught up in politics and polarization. That's not what this episode is about. It is about creation and its creator. We can't love one without the other. But in order to love it properly, we have to understand our own role in it. Because, of course, we're part of that creation. In fact, we're at the mountaintop, as it were. There's an erroneous outlook or worldview called speciesism, which holds that all species are created equal, that a human life has no more value or worth than that of a horse or a bumblebee. We call that nonsense. Jesus himself told us that we are worth more than many sparrows. One of the important documents of the Second Vatican Council, a major teaching event of the last century, has the line that man is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself. All other creatures have been created not for their own sake, but for ours. Animals and plants exist for the benefit of the human race, to provide food and clothing, transportation and companionship, and, as in the case of that cardinal, delight. There's a balance in our relationship with nature, and it can be a tricky one. We can slide into a neo-pagan worship of Mother Nature, treating it as God. We can also misunderstand our place on the mountaintop, though, as one of domination. There's a temptation to run roughshod over creation for selfish ends, raw consumerism. And the damage is often irreversible. There's no rebuilding a rainforest or reintroducing an extinct species. This created world is not our plaything. It has been entrusted to us, and it is a sacred trust. Our responsibility is to conserve it and hand it on so that those not yet born can enjoy the same vistas and sunsets and birdsong. Pope Benedict called this intergenerational justice, doing right by those who come after us. Some of the great works of literature capture the importance of the natural world. Many scholars have analyzed the place of trees and forests in the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, for example. The destruction of trees in The Lord of the Rings is a hallmark of evil, a warped desire to master the world. Evil is always ugly. The novel How Green Was My Valley reads as an elegy to the lost countryside of Wales, whose verdure has given way to the soot of the coal mines. The workers are seen not as human beings, but as means of production, the soulless conditions blackening their lungs and hardening their hearts. When we lose that balance, we also lose perspective. The misguided exaltation of other species can result in the denigration of the human species. A friend of mine once remarked that he walked down a street that had a dog spa 
where dogs were treated to massages and pedicures and gourmet meals. Right next to it was a homeless shelter for humans. That denigration manifests itself, too, in our attitude toward the future. I'm talking about the historically low fertility rate. Is this life worth living? Is the human experience worth passing on? There are many factors at play here, including a rampant hedonism that preaches self-fulfillment over self-sacrifice, lest children crimp your style and upend your exotic vacation plans. But there is also a pessimism about existence in general, largely tied to a disbelief in an afterlife. I remember seeing a bumper sticker once in the shape of a bone that said, I heart my granddogs. I thought, how sad. Where are the grandchildren? As we become unmoored from God's design, we are only beginning to see the threats around us. We often focus on a large scale. How are we damaging the natural world around us? Deforestation and endangered species and pollution. We don't give as much attention to the smaller human scale. That includes genetic engineering, cloning, mutilating bodies to pretend that a man is really a woman. It also includes callous disregard for human life that can lead, in its most extreme form, to abortion for genetic defects. In Iceland, for example, there are almost no children with Down syndrome. Almost 100% of women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Downs in their unborn child, regardless of how accurately, opt for abortion. Other Western countries are not far behind. What does that say about our society? When a human life, loved by God into existence, is treated as a defective product. A respect for all life can only happen in and through Christ, who is the author of creation. No one appreciated and loved the created world more than its own creator. How often does Jesus invoke images of nature in his teachings and parables? Grains of wheat, vine branches, the birds of the air, the color of the sky, the lilies of the field, fig trees and mustard seeds and moving mountains. The church has always fostered harmony within the created world, a harmony that existed before the fall and that will exist again in heaven. We see this in the ancient practice of not eating meat on Fridays, a practice that dates back to apostolic times. Friday is the sixth and final day of creation, on which God created animals and man. In the beginning, man did not eat animals. Permission to do so came only after the flood. Friday is also the day on which the new Adam, Jesus, died on the cross. Forgoing meat on Fridays isn't some arbitrary penance, a random food item that can be casually substituted. In fact, it's not about our sacrifice at all. It's about Christ's. When we abstain from animal flesh on Fridays, we remind ourselves that Jesus Christ gave up his flesh for the life of the world, and that only by eating his flesh will we live forever. He alone is the food that nourishes and satisfies. Just as every Sunday is a mini Easter, the day of the resurrection, so too is every Friday a mini Good Friday, a day of penance and atonement. For almost all of Christian history, the two went hand in hand. Christians don't eat meat on Friday, and they worship at Mass on Sunday. Sadly, that's been all but lost, as the ancient law is now reduced to only six Fridays in Lent. How good it would be to recover that, 
not just for its nod to the role of animals in the drama of redemption, but to give that public witness to the world that Jesus died for them too, as we look beyond the Friday of this life to the eternal Sunday of heaven. That's where creation should lead us. The name Avery Dulles may not be familiar to many people, even to many Catholics, and that's a shame. He came from one of the most prominent families in the country. His father was a United States senator and later Secretary of State under President Eisenhower. Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. is named for him. His great-grandfather and great-uncle were also Secretaries of State, and his uncle served as Director of the CIA. Avery had a lot to live up to. He was brought up as a Presbyterian, but by the time he arrived at Harvard, he had all but lost his faith in God. One day, young Avery went for a walk that would change the course of his life. In his autobiography, he recounts the experience. I was irresistibly prompted, he wrote, to go out into the open air. The lush of melting snow formed a deep mud along the banks of the River Charles, which I followed down toward Boston. As I wandered aimlessly, something impelled me to look contemplatively at a young tree. On its frail, supple branches were young buds. While my eye rested on them, the thought came to me suddenly, with all the strength and novelty of a revelation, that these little buds, in their innocence and meekness, followed a rule, a law of which I as yet knew nothing. That night, for the first time in years, I prayed. Never, since the eventful day which I have described, have I doubted the existence of an all-good and omnipotent God. Avery Dulles didn't get knocked off a horse, but his conversion has a St. Paul drama about it. He feverishly pursued the truth and it led him to the Catholic Church. He went on to become a priest, a world-famous theologian, and eventually a cardinal, the church type. It was a remarkable journey of faith that began one spring morning with a tree in bloom. Avery Dulles realized in a profound way that creation should lead us to the Creator. After all, it bears his stamp. And it is reasonable. It evinces a mind at work. I find it remarkable that astronomers can calculate the exact moment of an eclipse hundreds of years from now. That type of order and perfection could never come about through random chance. A thousand chimpanzees sitting at a thousand keyboards, typing for a thousand years, would never produce Hamlet. They'd never produce a single sentence from Hamlet. It seems more and more evident that advances in technology as amazing and helpful as they are, have disconnected us from the created world and diminished our appreciation for it. We don't need to live by the rising and setting of the sun because we have electricity. We're not as in tune with the seasons because we have climate-controlled offices. We don't await certain foods at certain times of the year because of the global economy. It all has its advantages, sure, but it is also rather artificial, even sterile, are we all a bit out of step, the rhythm of life a little thrown off? In the end, our love for the natural world must flow from our love for the supernatural world. We love creation because we love its creator, and it should pain us to see that creation misused and abused. All the same, we cannot give in to despair. No matter how hard we might try, we cannot bring about the end of the world. The world will end when and how God has decided, in His time, on His terms, 
When that happens, it will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. All of creation, including us, will be transformed and glorified. We don't know just what that entails, but eye has not seen what God has ready for us. I had a small taste of that during my sojourn into the Grand Canyon, as it opened up vistas I never imagined. In some ways, it serves as a metaphor for our journey through life, with all of its risks and perils, but also its beauty and joys. The last morning there, we set out under the stars to begin our long ascent. The sun grew higher and hotter as our goal got slowly nearer. When we finally reached the rim, there was a sense of enormous triumph. We made it. We're safe. We're home. That exhilaration seems like a foretaste of heaven, when we will have really made it at last. God leads us there, through this beautiful world he made, a trail that leads us not down into an abyss, but upwards, high through the clouds, to see and adore the creator of creation. Creation.